My Story podcast. That's where we sit down and we speak with different people and learn more to their story. Dave Barnes was a phenomenal guest. I feel very blessed to have sat here with him today and listened to his story. I can't wait for our listeners to hear about his mission work in Taiwan, his civil rights work, and just his stories. I'm just in awe of what I heard today. He is a fantastic man who has uh, had some experiences that we'd all just dream of having sometime, and to hear him articulate them and to hear uh, his ability to tell us from the heart uh, his passion for uh, uh, civil rights and uh, voting rights is just... uh, it was very moving. That was incredible to know what his role was during that time of helping get voters registered in deep Mississippi. That I was so impressed with the passion and the the bravery of, of what he was doing. I mean, a, a small kid from Minnesota and then Taiwan and then New York and then Mississippi. But I think my favorite part was listening to his laugh when we asked him about who the barbarians was. <laughs> Pull up a chair and listen in. I think you'll enjoy. Okay, so today we are sitting down with Dave Barnes, Reverend Dave Barnes, and we are so glad to have you here. And we are just so excited to sit with you and learn more of your story. You had sent us some notes and Thomas and I were both saying, wow, we can only do this for an hour because we would love to sit with you for five hours and just hear everything you have to say. So welcome. And um, we're going to have some fun today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for coming. As Carmelin mentioned, you sent us some notes and I read through those. It sounds like you grew up not far from the, I think it's called the Rust Belt in Minnesota, up there in northern Minnesota, Duluth. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the Iron Range was about, is about 50 miles north of where we lived. And uh, particularly during the Second World War, most of the iron that was used in, in the war effort was, was uh, mined there and came down to Duluth and put on ships and sent down to Cleveland and Pittsburgh and other places such as that. So we saw a lot of the trains going back and forth for that. That's great. That's great. You also mentioned in here that you didn't have a television set until you were a senior in high school. That's right. And so your your time away from school and family was outside, whether you were the summer you were playing ball. And yeah. Yes, that's correct, yes. And and one of the things people people wonder what you, in the world you do in Duluth in the wintertime. Yes. Well, you learn how to live out, outside. I, I delivered newspapers that sometimes when I got up in the morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, it was 40 below. Oh, goodness. And you'd step out on the snow, and it, it, we lived in kind of a valley, and you'd step out on the snow, and it would crack, and it sounded like a rifle shot going off. Oh, oh wow. Goodness. So you, you played a lot of baseball. That was one of your favorite yeah, yes, sports. Yes, right. In the winter, did you play any hockey? or? I did not play hockey. I, I was a student manager of our high school hockey team during that time. And uh, so I knew, knew hockey, loved hockey, and uh, uh, have a lot of fond memories of hockey, but I didn't play it. Okay, okay so, so back at this time, tell us, what year were you born? I was born in 1935 in the summer, yeah. Okay, summer baby. And did you have any siblings? 
Yes, I've, I had two older brothers, one of whom just died two weeks ago. Oh, goodness, and, so sorry. And the other one who died uh, a couple of years ago, both of them older than me. Okay. Um, the one that most recently died uh, was born seven years older than me, and he was a, an attorney and judge. And the older one uh, uh, was born eight and a half years older than I was. Okay. And then I have a younger sister. Oh, okay. Two years younger, so we're the survivors now. Oh, okay. So... Okay, very good. All right. Great. So growing up in, in Minnesota, you your family went to a Presbyterian church? Yes. Although I was baptized in a, in a I suppose it would be a congregational church. It was in the, when I grew when I, I was actually born at home in the western part of Duluth. And, uh, and that's where we went to church at first. Although I don't remember anything about that. And then when I was five or so, our family moved to the eastern part of Duluth to the house that my dad had grown up in. So, and that, we were there for the rest of my life. So, wow, great. okay. So you were there at that home until you, until you left. Yeah, until I left to go. I, I went to the first two years. I went through um, from kindergarten through sixth grade in one school and then from seventh through twelfth grade in another school. And then I went to the University of Minnesota in Duluth, which was within walking distance of my house. Wow. So, so uh, I lived at, lived at home for all those years. It's funny because when you hear that it's in walking distance, you're like, oh, that's great. But then I think, yeah, but it was 40 below in the winter. <laughs> well, uh, that, that, that was early in the morning. And, and by the time I was going to school, okay. it was at least 35 below. Oh, God, that's just so awful. <laughs> So you went to University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, you studied engin- I just, mechanical engineering. I, I just at, in Duluth, I was in pre-engineering. They did okay. not have a full engineering course, and I was getting ready then to go down to the university in, in Minneapolis. Well, my dad used to refer to it as a Southern Branch, but and down there, I studied mechanical engineering. That's right, and, and I was in a work study program with, with Toro Manufacturing yep. Corporation. And, and d- during that time, so you go through three years, the engineering school is three years. Yes. So you're going to school a quarter, working a quarter, going to school a quarter, working a quarter. That's correct. And during that time, did you find out you loved engineering? No, it was during that time. <clears throat> and, and during those quarters at, uh, at Toro, I was moving from department to department to department. And during that time, I discovered that I didn't want to spend the rest of my time being a an engineer, and, and I was very active in the uh, Presbyterian student congregation at the at the university, besides which I had grown up in the church, and uh, so I decided I'd at least give seminary a try, and so uh, I applied to go to seminary and was accepted to enter that following fall after graduating from Minnesota. Okay, so when you were getting ready to first go to college, I would imagine engineering was a pretty popular field because... Yes. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And Particularly for, for men. Right. Yeah, yeah. There sure. were very few. I can't remember any women being in in, in that field when I was at, at UMD, at, at, at Duluth Branch. Right. Okay. And so did you go to Minnesota Duluth just for the close proximity? Had you thought about other colleges? No. Okay. How was college funded? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I kept very close track of how much I spent during those two years at Duluth. I, I had no board and room expenses and no, no transportation expenses. I spent $443 during those first two years for books, tuition, 
uh, incidentals and so forth. And and I was I worked in the summertime, and so I was able to pay my own way freight wow. there. Yes, wonderful. And then when you went to the University of Minnesota, and I was working at Toro. I was getting paid at Toro. Okay. And I was able. One of the things that attracted me to this pro to this program, the cooperative work study program, was the fact that I would be able to pay my own way, and uh, so that that helped an awful lot. So when you were thinking of going from engineering, realizing, and the beauty of that is with your working and studying, you really kind of got to see what engineering looked like, I imagine. Yes, yes, yes. Which is a, is a blessing. So when you were kind of going from, from your engineering to your thoughts on seminary, did your family have any opinions? I didn't include them in, <gasps> oh. in, in that discussion. Yeah. Because I... I Felt that I, I can't remember exactly my feelings on this. Thing. I, first of all, I was living in a dormitory down at the University of Minnesota, so I, I didn't need to involve them. Okay. Uh, I knew my mother would be very delighted, and I'm not sure how my dad would have responded to it. But, sure. but Was, wasn't that kind of the way back then in that time where, you know, you coming out of i mean i guess that would be coming out of world war ii you're in the that's right the 50s right. Uh, late 50s maybe and you're and you're making decisions back then there wasn't hey what's down as a family if you're paying your own way through college and yeah. you at the end you kind of said this is my next step yes i i yeah i think that's probably right that that we didn't involve our our families too much in it at that point okay yeah. yes so where did you go to seminary McCormick Seminary in Chicago, which is a Presbyterian school there. At, the, at that time, it was on the near north side at, at Halstead and, and Fullerton. Oh, sure. I'm from just, Chicago. Yes, right. I remember that. <laughs> and uh, it was just, just west of Lincoln Park Zoo. Oh, yes. Yes. And, and we were right, right adjacent to DePaul University. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. In seminary, what was that experience like for you? You come out of more of a scholastic engineering. I'm trying to take classes. I'm working, applying what I'm learning in class. You get a degree in engineering, yeah. and then you go right off into seminary, which, which was a little bit of a different direction, I would think. Well, one of the, one of the things that happened was I had to I had to take Greek and Hebrew, the required courses. Uh, Greek we started in the first year, and Hebrew in the second year. When I entered the Greek class, it was the first time I'd ever been in a foreign language class. I had never taken any foreign language in high school nor in the university up to that point. Wow. And so they started talking about adverbs and adjectives, and I said, well, I think I remember Miss Buck talking about that in seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you do? Did you find that that was a struggle to learn a foreign language, or did it come easy to you? It didn't come easy, but I... I I uh, worked at it, and uh, I still bring the uh, Greek New Testament to church every Sunday. And I, oh, wow. when we have, like we did today, had a, a lesson out of the New Testament, I follow along in the Greek New Testament. Oh, that is really cool. I can't say that I can read it. Um, when I was finishing seminary, the second year of, of Greek, we were reading various books. And the first year of, of Greek is mostly grammar and, and sentences and so forth. In the second year, we were doing a, uh, did a dissertation or an exegesis on, I know I chose was a passage in, in 1 Corinthians, but our, our professor had prepared from before I was a student word lists 
that he provided. So for, so, for example, if you've studied a foreign language at any time, you've probably had a reader at some time early on where you, you had stuff, and then at the bottom of the page were the, in, the, the words that were unusual. Right. The point being to learn the words that are, are, are frequently used. And so he provided those things for all of the Gospels and all the Johannine literature and uh, the major epistles of Paul. Uh, well, at one, someplace along there, we were studying the book of James, and there, he didn't have this. And so I, I made those lists, and I showed them to him, and he was quite impressed. And uh, anyway, when I was graduating from seminary, uh, he, he was Dr. Morrison. He said, uh, he came over to me, uh, and he said, uh, Dave, he said, um, he said, I'd like to complete and publish these lists and would you be willing to work with me on that? And uh, uh, I said, yes, I would. And so um, uh, I started working on, on the remaining books that he hadn't done, oh, wow. which included Hebrews, James, First uh, uh, and Second Peter, and I think, well, there were a couple others in Jude, I expect. Uh, there, were, there were several that were in there. And we did get it published. It was published in 1974 by Erdman's, uh, so I'm a co-editor of that of that book. Wow. Word, word list for the rapid reading of the Greek Testament. Oh my goodness, so, that's something! Yeah. Wow. So let me ask you a question: um, What did you have a, a specific situation or a moment or what kind of taps you to say? I think I might ministry might be for me what was your well well part of it of course i i i've always explained this as saying that god not only opens doors but god closes doors right and and i felt that that uh, i did not want to spend the rest of my life being an engineer and and the next possibility was was going into ministry and so uh, i remember going off to seminary and my mother was delighted i told her, i said mom i said when I get home at Christmas, I say maybe the last time in seminary. I mean, I I, I didn't know I didn't know what I was facing, and so uh, it turned out when I came home at Christmas, it wasn't that I was still thinking of keep going forward. Okay. And so, uh, and, and as I went along in seminary, I was more and more convinced that yes, this is the right direction for me. So. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So. You go to seminary, are you studying a particular path in seminary? Nowadays, there's a Master's of Divinity, there's a... Uh, well, in those days, the standard, the standard degree was um, Bachelor, of, uh, Bachelor of Divinity, B- okay. BD, which is what I received after three years at McCormick. And uh, that was 15 years or so later when bachelor's degrees didn't meet much. Uh, McCormick was willing to, uh, if you send in 50 bucks, you could get it changed to a master's degree. <laughs> we got that same story from Finn Washer. Yeah, Finn Washer yeah, yeah. only had to pay $25. Well, maybe though. that's what it was. He, he has a better memory about those <laughs> right. things than I, than I. Oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> great. But so, I, I didn't do that, so, but, uh, so, I, so I have that bachelor's degree. Oh, really? So you never did get the well, certificate? Well, then I, after I, being off to Taiwan, I, I came back and went to... Union Seminary in New York. There, I have a master's degree in sacred theology. Oh, yeah. So I think I don't think Finn paid the twenty-five dollars no, because he said he's got a doctorate without having a master's. Yeah, yes. yeah. Okay. So you 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 kind of mentioned it. See, so you're finishing up in seminary. 
and you you meet with um, Margaret Flory. Flory, yes. Margaret Flory was a fantastic lady who knew everybody everywhere. And uh, anyway, she came to seminary, and she she just uh, she she worked for the committee uh, commission on ecumenical mission and relations. Comar was the nickname of it. It was successor to the board of foreign missions for the uh, Presbyterian Church. Anyway, her she was in the process of trying some new uh, experimental options, and at that time, the program. Uh, what was it that, that President Kennedy started sending people to various parts of the world? Uh, Peace Corps? Peace Corps, yes. Yep. The Peace Corps was, it had just started. And so this thing was somewhat on the same basis. Uh, she wanted people to go off to different parts of the world. Uh, we would, rather than being solidly related with the missionaries where, where we were working, we would be keeping in touch with the people who are in Africa and South America and Korea and India and so forth through through mail and so forth. And so that was part of the theory of this thing. The other thing that was going on at that time, when I was a youngster, the church sent missionaries to other parts of the world. By the time I finished seminary, we were being invited to come and a huge difference, and and, and so sure. so uh, anyway, uh, she talked to me about this, and and it it interested me as a possibility of doing this, without any idea where I would go, wow. and uh, she arranged for me to join the other people who were in this program to go through missionary orientation at Stony Point, New York, which was a still is, but is a place that just a little bit north of New York City on the Hudson River where at that time they were used for training missionaries to going to other parts of the world. Now it has a much broader program. But and real quick, the missionaries that you went to then to, to study before you went off, was that a Presbyterian-based community or that was just a Christian-based community with all? It was a Presbyterian-owned conference ground. Okay. But it was ecumenical. The, most of the people there, in fact, were... Uh, Methodist Church short-term missionaries. Okay. And uh, there were some from several other denominations sure. also. But the, the, I think there were 10 or 12 of us who were in this frontier, frontier internship program, which was what this program that I was in was going in. And I was the only one going to Taiwan or Formosa. Um, some were going to, I think the most of them were going to different places in Africa and some to South America. I know there was one gal going to Korea and another gal going to India. Wow. Okay, so, so you mentioned Formosa, and in your paperwork you do mention that this is one of the islands off of China, similar to Taiwan. It's a, it's, it is it, Taiwan. It is part of – Formosa is the, the large island of Taiwan? Yes. So okay. we call it – as I mentioned in some place here, yep. I, I mentioned that Formosa – uh, was settled by Chinese back in the 15th or 16th century. Back then, the Portuguese discoverers came and named it Formosa, which means beautiful island. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Formosa is a geographical name, and Taiwan is a political reference to it. Okay. Same same place. Oh, that's but, that's great, you know, and, it, and you explain it in here, and you just explain it better for me to understand it here. 
you're you get to a point where you finish your training in Stony yeah, Point, yeah, yes, and you're going to go over to Taiwan, yes, and you you and it, and it shows the time of because when you go over there, you you fly to Seattle, I think it was or San Francisco, yes, and then you get on a on freighter, a, a freight boat, yes. freighter boat, yeah, and 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 I thought this was unique because on the way back, I think you flew, yes, so but on the way over, you get on a boat. And you're on this this ship vessel for two weeks. I think it was longer than that. Okay, maybe it three went weeks. From about the eighth of December until about the twenty third of December. Okay, but you had something pretty incredible happen <laughs> towards yeah. the end of that. Yes, I did. Yes, we ran into a typhoon. Oh. and uh, that was that was kind of interesting. Uh, it was off. We were off the, off Japan. We we're far enough out so we couldn't see Japan, but it was two or three days away, and. Uh, <laughs> They, they had us. I, I, I bunked in my own room. There was only four passengers on the ship, which would hold eight or ten passengers. But anyway, when this thing started, uh, one of the uh, crew members came in and took a life jacket and put it under my mattress so that you'd have uh, just a, a valley that you were sleeping Goodness. in. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, wouldn't roll out of the bed. Roll out of bed. But the next morning. I was getting I was getting ready to shave, and the sink and the mirror were up on a bulkhead, in, in here and behind me was a porthole that I could see with oh, mirror. Sure. Oh. And and once I'd see I see nothing but water, and the next time I see nothing but heavens. Oh <laughs> my gosh, that's so <laughs> crazy! But you, you didn't get any seasickness during that all no, those rolls. No, no, no. But uh, one of the things that was other interesting thing was. Um, Ships, when they're maneuvering, they have to always have a red light on that's on top of the highest post on the boat. Um, and uh, that boat, that, that light, red light burned out. Oh, ah. good. And so the captain had to send somebody up that post up there. In the middle to, of the storm. In the middle of the storm to replace that bulb. <laughs> and when I talked to the captain, well, see, there are only three non-crew members on there. So we, we were able to be up on the on the... Uh, where they ran the ship from, and uh, I said to the captain, I said, "That guy, that guy has earned his his money for the rest of the trip." He says, "That's something just every day, every day done." Oh gosh, so, so. isn't that something? <laughs> oh my goodness! That, that, it's amazing that after all these years, that that event made such an impact. I mean, I would imagine oh. it would. Yeah. I, but that is that is a tremendous uh, story. I mean, you're on this this vessel for. Two and a half, you know, weeks, three yes. weeks, whatever the yeah. time frame was, and you you're almost to your destination, yeah. and you go through a typhoon. Yes, yeah. Oh so, goodness. So. Okay, they, so then you're in Taiwan now from 1961 to 1964. Yes, from about Christmas time of 61 to June of 64, about two and a half years. You did two different things during that time. You started with one one job. What was that first job you did? Well, that was basically working with university students. There was an engineering school in Tainan, so having an engineering background, they invited me to go over there and teach English as a second language. So I did that and then got acquainted with the engineering students. But I also lived with them. I lived in a, it was a kind of a dormitory, but it was not on campus. It was away from campus. Like student housing? Yes, yes. And I, this was a group of about 10 Chinese students Taiwanese students, and uh, I, I, I was there, and so they were always trying to practice their English, 
and I had hoped to learn some Chinese from them, but um, you, we skipped over the fact that I had studied Chinese at Yale University on the way over before I went I over there. I don't think that was in any notes. Uh, yeah. It may have been in here, but you're right. So you did have some Chinese. Yes. Because I was going to ask you Same. But, but the, for, the, the transition. I, 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 for work, I get to go over to Asia and China and Shanghai yeah. and that area. And so I know what it's like today. Yes. And I imagine oh. when I was there, the first time I went was... Um, 10 years ago. Yes. And the difference from 10 years ago to today is pretty pretty yes. different. Yeah. I can't imagine what it was like back in 1961 when hardly any Americans or Westerners were, were yes. making that trip. But you had had some Chinese. So you, were you able to converse very well? What was your... Well, I'll tell you what I learned. This was uh, what I learned to say most clearly was, well, which says, I, I don't know how to speak Chinese. <laughs> but I said it so well that the Chinese said, he's just being polite. Yeah. And, they, and they value that very highly. And then when they saw the blank look on my face, they realized he wasn't being polite, he was being honest. <laughs> so say that again for us. Well, bu hei shua jung hua. Well done. Yeah. So was it Mandarin? Yeah, was that's that Mandarin. The, yeah. And that's Mandarin. And that's good to, thank you for asking that, Thomas. Um, and that's one, of the, that's one of the things that was an issue there. When I was living with these students, these were all Taiwanese students, and they speak a different, uh, they, they obviously know because they, they, they uh, use it in school all the time. They, they, they're fluent in Mandarin, but they don't like to speak it, at least back then they didn't like to speak it, because it represented the, the Chiang Kai-shek government, and, and they had no use at all for Chiang Kai-shek. Yep. And, and today, even there are so many different dialects yes, in, the, yes, in the Chinese language. Yes, yeah. I, I just so when you went over there, what was the experience um, that you faced when you the first month, two months of being in a foreign country? You had never traveled very much. You traveled a little bit of the U.S., but yeah. now you're in a foreign land. You know very little bit of. Their, their language, yes. and they don't have anything that's Americanized there. There's no yeah, English. Right, there's no restaurants right, that are right, English. That's right, right. So what was that like for you? Well, one of the things that happened, uh, as soon as I got to Tainan, which is a southern city where I was going to live and work, uh, they assigned me a, a, a graduate student from the seminary there who was uh, fluent in English and as a translator. So I had, I had this fellow with me all the time, which which made that possible. Oh, that's that, that that probably helps a lot. But yeah, but I was getting back to Mandarin. Um, these, these students that I lived with, they all spoke Taiwanese, and so I I wasn't hearing uh, hearing the language that I was trying to trying to pick up on <laughs> at all because they, they they didn't want to speak Mandarin. They could do it, and they could do it excellently. But when, when they were with, with one another there, they, they didn't speak that at all. And so I didn't, I didn't hear any, and so my Chinese uh, disintegrated. The little bit that I had uh, went to nothing, practically. So. Yes. so as you worked with these college students, was, there, um, was, was part of the, the plan to introduce Christianity to them? At what point was, did your mission, was it mainly just a, to kind of broaden their horizons to an American, or was it deeper than that? Well, the, the, the mission was to be there, to be a presence there. Mm -hmm. And uh, to the extent that uh, you can speak about 
Christianity, when they don't know English and you don't know their language, uh, it becomes rather difficult. And so uh, that, that wasn't a major, a major question at that point. When you were there for those, those two and a half, three years, did you um, feel like, what was your overall sense of like looking back at that time? Was that fond memories? Was that difficult times? Was it, tell us a little bit, just kind of looking back at your overall. Well, that, that's a very, they're very fond memories. I have, I have very good memories of, of my time in Taiwan. Yes, so mm-hmm. it was a great, great time. And as I wrote someplace in here, it was a time when, when uh, uh, my faith deepened, my my outlook on life uh, deepened, and so yes. forth, and so all of that was going on. So it was a pretty formative time yes, for yes, you. Yes, yeah, very much so, yes. Yeah. Yes. So your plan was to be there for three years, and a year and a half in, you got asked to be the secretary at the... Uh, Theological College, yes. Yeah. I see, I was I was associated with the Theological College all the way along the line. The... the, the uh, principal of the school, which is the same as the president of a school here. The principal of the school was fluent in English, and he was a Taiwanese man, fluent in English, fluent in Japanese, and uh, he was he was kind of my advisor and so forth. And he spoke, and he represented the Taiwanese church in the National, in the World Council of Churches, and he was he was recognized all over the place as as a just an outstanding human being, which he was. But he did a lot of uh, writing. Always had trouble getting nouns and verbs to agree and number and so forth. Right. And so, so I'd have to straighten out some of that stuff with him. But <laughs> but uh, his his ideas came through very clearly. That's a great mentorship. The main religion in Taiwan when you were there was what. Well, some of these, some of the students that I was with were Christian. Okay. Not not many of them, but some. Uh, the other religion would be uh, a Buddhism of, of mm-hmm. some some order or another. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You get to the end of your three years working with um, uh, Mr. Huang, or I don't know if he was. Yeah. Had a. Shoki Huang. Yeah. Yeah, Huang. I don't know if he had a different, you know surname to that but and you really you were considering staying there yes but then you you started thinking about home back yes, in the united yes, states yes, yes. and you decided at the end when you got accepted into um union seminary in new york yes. union seminary in new york that you decided to go back yes yes so tell us about leaving taiwan was that a difficult transition coming back to the u.s not terribly i i mean by this time by the time I was leaving, I was looking forward to being home. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, one of the things that hasn't been in any of the stuff I've given you is I'm a very, I was a very, very picky eater. I and was so, wondering. Uh, <laughs> eating eating uh, food that I had never heard of before and so forth was, was uh, a challenge for me all the way along. But I also decided I would eat what was put before me, so I did that. and. Uh, Eating things that uh, I'm not even sure what they are oh, anymore. Oh, yeah, so. I wouldn't want to <laughs> ask. But, but anyway, so I was look, looking forward to getting back home. I was looking forward. Union Seminary has a has a has a marvelous reputation around the world, and uh, the fact that they accepted me into their program was something I was really looking forward to in a great way. So I did that. Isn't it funny how you don't until you finally make the decision that you're ready to move on. 
And then you're thinking, oh, I think I'm ready to move on. Then you make that decision. You're like, tomorrow. <laughs> you know, yeah, yes, it can't yeah. come quick yeah, enough yeah, once yeah. you really have committed. And, and once I'd made that decision, I did not let my parents know. Oh. Um, but my older brother, the one who died a couple of weeks ago, was an attorney in Duluth. And so I wrote to him. I said, uh, do you think I'd just come home and surprise parents? Yes. He said, no, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> like you may not be able to leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, um, so what I did, because I didn't, my mother worried a good bit about my traveling. Sure. And uh, if she had known I was going to have to fly across the Pacific, uh, she she would uh, she would still be awake. But uh, yes. a- anyway, I got all the way to Minneapolis before I called home and let mom and dad know I was coming. So. Oh, how wonderful! So then. Um, you go to Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Yes. And you work towards a master's in, here it's, it's a systematic theology. Yeah, the, the program, the degree is uh, master's in sacred theology, and the topic was systematic theology. That was what I studied. You know. Okay. And I don't want to get into that so much because you get into something else here pretty quick. Yes. And that is when you're at Union... Um, there is a um, the civil rights movement has started yes. in the United States, yes, specifically yes. down south. And, yes, and yes, yes. Mississippi is probably the the center of it. Yes. Um, and you have a desire to get involved in that. Yes. And you you talk about that at different points about how that desire kind of came about because when you were in Taiwan, people would hear about how we would treat. And I say we Americans yeah. were treating. Yes. Um, uh, African Americans or other yeah. races, yeah. and yeah. the Taiwanese just couldn't fathom that, or the Chinese couldn't fathom yeah. why we would be that way. Yeah. Yes, yes, and that that really resonated within you. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And I, I got to the point where I said, if I'm going to be held responsible for this, I want to do something about it. And so I came back, and and uh, that that wasn't at the center of my thinking right right off the bat. But uh, one of my colleagues at McCormick Seminary was by this time working down in, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi with a program from the National Council of Churches. And uh, I heard about that, and so I saw Bob Beach. He was also from Minnesota, but I hadn't known him when I was a student at the university. But um, I wrote him and asked him if he, if he thought that I could, uh, if that was something that I could do. And, and so he said, by all means, he said, just write a letter and apply to come down and do that. And so I did. Wow. So, so did you end up getting your master's? Yes, I did. Oh, so, you, in- so I had, I, I, I was there for those two semesters. Uh, I I'd, I'd, uh, dropped out of a class, so I didn't have enough credits. And so I spent uh, um, June at, at Union and a, and a special summer seminar to get those credits done that I needed to, to get the degree. And so I did that. Well, and real quick, I wanted to talk about while you were at Union, because, you know, I, I'm not a big history buff like Thomas, but I'm, I do enjoy some history. But this I did know mostly because it was an Oprah-produced movie. <laughs> um, but during your time at Union, you mentioned how many of your um, colleagues were going to do the March to Selma. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And... Uh, not just students, but some of the faculty who are down there and so forth. I, I was, um, I'm not a great student, and so I didn't figure I could take uh, 
basically a week off and and uh, I go down there and do that. So okay. I didn't do it. And when they got back, did you hear some pretty powerful stories? Yes, I'm not sure that I can remember any of them right yeah. now, but it certainly made a strong impression. I would imagine. Yeah. The, the sentence you wrote here is, although I did not march at Selma, the cause which prompted it burned in my heart. Yes, yes. And that's a pretty powerful yes, yes. sentence there Yes, to say how much not being able to be a part of yeah, that yes. made it even your desire to get yeah. involved more. Yes, yes. Okay. And you, the other thing that, just to put it in context for the people listening to this, I'm not married by this time. I didn't have I didn't have the responsibilities of being a, a husband or a father. Right. So it, made, it it freed me up to do things that I couldn't I would not have done and could not have done had I been married and with children. Absolutely, and, and that's and, a good point because you definitely make different choices and decisions. Absolutely. Of, yes. And for this time, you're roughly about thirty years old. Yes, I turned well, not quite. I, I thirty. I turned thirty in '65, and this was that. Yes, that's right. It was original at that time. So it's, it's all, you're almost thirty. You're getting yeah. close to that. Yeah. So like, at this like, time, twenties. Yes. Yeah. In, in, in the 1960s, that's I, I don't want to say it's unheard of, but a lot of people people were getting married right out of college. Sure, sure, sure. Or sure. in college. Yeah, that's a question. So. I, I was a late bloomer when it came to marriage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so and, myself as well. <laughs> um, Norma from uh, staff here mentioned, I think she said, did you meet Martin Luther King? Yes, hear? yes, I did. He came to McCormick Seminary and, and preached one day and afterwards had a book signing, and I, I have that book in my library. That's what she mentioned. So he, he, he signed it, and wow. I have that. It's probably the, probably the most precious book I've got there. I'll say. At the time when he came, you're at McCormick Seminary. This yeah. is before you went to Taiwan. Yes, this, in fact, was the end of my first year at McCormick. So this is back probably... It was 1915. It was April 59. Okay. And so what was... Where was Martin Luther King Jr. at in as far as notoriety in in his pursuit of... Well, he was, he was well-known by that point. Uh, fantastic preacher. Oh. Man. Man. And, of course, I imagine the sermon I heard was probably one he'd preached 14 times before I heard it. So, <laughs> if but, not more. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> so, any, anyway, but uh, it, it, was, it was a really a, a fantastic experience in my life to have, have been able to meet him. I, I hope that book stays in your family for a long time. That yes. is a treasure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. So you, through working with the friend you had from McCormick, you applied to Delta Ministry. Yes, that's that's the name of the program from that is sponsored by the National Council of Churches. Okay, and so then you went to Mississippi. Yes, and their headquarters were in Greenville, and that's where I went. And and for the context of this, I don't remember the names of these three fellows who were murdered. Uh, there was two Jewish kids from the north and a black kid from the south mm-hmm. who were murdered and put into a, an earthen dam. Whose bodies were discovered for several years, I think. Yeah, I think and, that's what the movie Mississippi Burning yes, is yeah. based on. Yes. And, you, and so, what did you do when you got to Mississippi? Well, I spent a couple of days just getting oriented in the down in, in Greenville, and then and then they provided me a, a a van to take up to Winstonville. Winstonville is a, a all black community on Highway Fifty Three. Between Shelby and Mount Bayou, Mount Bayou happens to be the at that time was the largest all-black community in the United States, mm. 
and that was just five miles away from where we were. Uh, there was a guy already in town there. He was a college-age student who was from Mount Bayou, and he was already conducting civil rights stuff in that area. It was a huge rural area controlled by cotton. Uh, so I moved in with him, and this was an experience also. I, this is place we moved into was had was a building that had been built as a store at one time, real narrow, and and uh, the toilet was out in back. Oh gosh! And I sh- we shared it with the people who owned the, the store we were in, and uh, it was it was primitive to say to say the least. Yes. And, and at the beginning. When I first got there, the uh, voting rights laws were those of Mississippi. One of the aspects of that thing, I have that paper in my stuff, was that they would, a person had to fill it out, and of course, if a person was illiterate, they couldn't do it. And so that eliminated a whole bunch of people who never learned how to read or write. The other thing was that, so to eliminate a whole bunch of other people, there was a, a question there, a place there quite near the end of it that said at this point the register of voter registrar of voters will indicate a portion of the constitution of mississippi and she or he would write the thing in there and then uh now you have to copy it out onto this paper and then the next question was now provide a your own interpretation of what that means you had to write it out and so people who were illiterate, there was no way they would get to vote at all. Yeah. Wow. And, and uh, so anyway, that was the way it was when I got there. In, toward the end of July, uh, the, the first round of federal voting rights laws came into it, kicked in, at which point we were then ready to go out and start finding people because that sort of stuff had ended at that point. So we, we were pretty well geared up to start going out and finding people to uh, go down to the registrar's office in, wow. in, in the county seat. But the issue there then was, was people were terribly frightened. Uh, the black people just uh, had so many bad examples over yes. their lifetimes with white people that they just didn't trust any white people. And so um, we, had, we had been doing some work in terms of laying the groundwork for this and when when this law changed we were able to go out into the countryside and in the little communities and find people at the beginning it took people who were very very brave because they didn't know if they'd get back alive or not right and uh, so the students at the university at, at in claremont california uh, at the claremont colleges had raised money and provided Two trucks. They were actually bread trucks. They'd taken the the uh, shelving out of the back and installed planking seats there. We could seat about twelve people in in that wow. thing. And so we would drive out in the countryside. We would have from previous conversations. We would know somebody who might be willing to go if you hit hit them on the right day right. and so forth. And so we'd pick up people and and as people had non-negative experiences the word got around Slowly it's spread. okay to go with these guys and so at the beginning you have three or four people and and they'd come back and they'd tell their friends and and the next day you might have five or six and then a second thing happened in federal law 
I think it happened in September. Oh, I'm not not sure of the dates anymore, but um, the law got changed so that you could not even require a person to be able to read and write. A person did not have to write his his or her own name in order to register to vote. And so now we have a whole bunch of people who have who have heard about uh, that, that this experience is is not life threatening. Yes. And and we were able to go out and get get a lot more people to go down to to register. And that was a very rewarding experience. Oh, oh fantastic! Gosh, yes, Dave, it that's was. Yeah. Phenomenal that yeah, you yeah. you were part of that change yeah. and and yeah. and I just can't imagine the emotion involved and wow, that is really incredible. One of the interesting things happened at, at Christmas time. A group of students from Ohio University came down to to work in the civil rights movement just for a few days. So they they would go with us in the in the truck out there into the out into the what an rural areas. Yeah, it was one of these guys. There were guys and gals, but this happened to be a guy that said, "I hope to see some excitement." Oh. And excitement was the last thing I wanted to see <laughs> yeah. in this thing. Did, did so, you have any times where you were maybe a little fearful of the situation you were in? Uh, well, backing up to when I first went down there, when when the I went down by Greyhound bus, and when the bus crossed from Mississippi and from uh, Tennessee into Mississippi, I could feel my stomach tightening. Up. Oh gosh, it was terrible. Well, mm. and even thinking, and you mentioned it earlier, you grew up in Minnesota, yeah. which had almost no black people. I was going to say, yeah, when 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 we had a professional Class C baseball team in Duluth. When the when the Duluth Dukes arrived from spring training, and they had three or four black guys on the team, yeah. it doubled the black population in Duluth. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not very much. Right. Yeah, I, and, and you know, I I think you're probably right on. I guess that you grow up in a predominantly white area. Absolutely, and even you know? even in Duluth, I lived in an all white area. I I can't. I think the first time that there was a black student in any class that I was ever in was when I was at the University of Minnesota and taking a, uh, a non-engineering class, a psych, a psych class someplace along the line. And then, and then you go to Taiwan and yeah. you live with the Taiwanese, yes. the Chinese there. Yes. So, and when I say live, you lived in student housing with them. Yes, so, that's right. And then you come back and you, you end up down in Mississippi. Did you live with uh, some black people there? In that? Well, in that, in that little house that I lived in, for the, from when I arrived there early July until he went off to college in probably late late August, early September, I lived with him, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I would imagine at that time, and I can even say at this time, it, it's more prevalent now or more multicultural now, especially in Houston, but in general, a lot of people go through life and never have that experience you had by the time you were 30 yeah. in the late 50s, early 60s. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That, that's, that's a pretty astounding it's thing when I think phenomenal. back in history that you went and you became so diverse and after coming out of such of a, I guess, standard American little situation. Well, it was. And Duluth, <laughs> Duluth is, not Los An- is not San Francisco. Right. Yes. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so, yeah. so, uh, uh, yes, it, it was. It was uh, culturally very different. So, what does your mom at that point now think? I, I can imagine being a mom myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, 
And and this is something you may have to take out of this thing because I'll probably cry. Oh no, that's all right. But, I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. Emotion's good. Yeah. But uh, a couple of years ago, my sister told me that when I got in the car with my dad to go down to get into the Greyhound bus to go down to Mississippi, my mom raced back into the house and went upstairs and just cried. Her. Oh. She thought she'd never see me again. Right. Uh, that's what and I was thinking you know, as a mom. I mean, that 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 mother's love is so strong, yeah. and it and yeah, and n- nobody knows. I mean, I think it's it's a blessing that your sister shared that with you. Yeah. Uh, but I also think your mom probably didn't do it in front of you because she knew you were doing what you wanted to do. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, that was part. Yeah, so, tough time. Yeah. That is, and again, that is what I find so beautiful about your story because you're going against the grain. You're walking in while most people are walking out, and mm-hmm. I always feel when I hear of really strong faith stories or saint, saintly people, it's they're walking in when others are walking out, and and for you to to have the courage and um, for your parents to have, have raised a, a man of character to do that. And, you know, as a mom, we always cry when our kids do anything that's just a little different. So bless her heart. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, w- I want to read this one paragraph that you wrote because um, I think it's a good good transition. You said was that fought, in that, is that in that thing from the letter that, that, you, I, that I put? From your yep. kid, for your kids and grandkids. Yep. It says, The five years from when I was accepted into the Frontier Internship Program in spring of 1961 until I returned to Duluth in spring of 1966 were the most formative years of my life. My life, my understanding, and my ministry have been profoundly shaped by Taiwan and Mississippi. Although much of these letters, because this is a prelude to some letters that you had written during that time that have been saved and you've been able to share with your family, is very mundane, even boring at times, I hope you will gain from them some insight into what has made me who I am. Mm-hmm. And when I read the, this prelude to these letters that you yeah. had shared, yeah. I, was, I was very, I mean, it's well-written, but it's, it's a life. I mean, and you come out of it at 30, 31, 30 years old, and you've experienced so much at that point. And to look back, you've experienced a lot. First grade is when Pearl Harbor happened, I think you said. Right, right. So you understand a little bit of World War II. You go to uh, Asia, Taiwan, then you go to the civil rights movement. I mean, that is phenomenal what you've been through in the first 30 years of your life. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and then in year 31 or so, I believe you meet a a little lady named Edie. You want to tell us a little bit about when you met her and where you were? Well, I'd I'd been invited to be the assistant pastor at at Brentwood Presbyterian Church in a suburb of Pittsburgh. And uh, so I started that. I think I arrived there in mid-June or so. And... uh, I was I was living alone, up, up, not too far from the church. But any but any case, oh, well, her mom uh, worked at the church. She she helped to clean the place and so forth. And so I knew her. And one day she invited me to come to their house to, to have to have uh, dinner with them. And so I, I earlier on when I first got there, um, a week or so after I arrived, the the pastor of the church 
I was either on vacation or something. In any case, I, w- I was kind of in charge of everything that was going on. And Edie had had an appendix taken out. And so I was on my way over to the hospital to try to find, find her to uh, do pastoral care on this person <laughs> that had, had uh, just had her appendix out. I couldn't find the hospital. Um, Pitt, Pittsburgh, have, have you either been to Pittsburgh anytime? Yes, I have. Yes. There, there are no two parallel streets in <laughs> yeah. Pittsburgh anywhere. Uh, 100 feet and 100 feet, there's a turn someplace. And uh, any any case, uh, so I, I didn't see her. And, and uh, so I, I blew, blew this assignment I had to provide pastoral care to this person who was just suffering from having had her appendix out. And uh, anyway, she was in the choir, and uh, this sanctuary was one of these lovely New England sanctuaries, mm. long and narrow, and, and, and the pulpit on one side and, and, the, and the lectern on the other. And when the pastor was preaching from over there, I was at the lectern, and she was in the choir, and um, she kept winking at me. Oh, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> So cute. <laughs> no, that's not what happened. Her, <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> her, 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 her mother invited me to come down there to supper, to have supper, and, and so Edie was there, of course, and uh, sometime after that, I invited her to go to a movie, and that was that's kind of a funny thing also. <laughs> um, we went to see Dr. Chivago, and we purposely went to the far side of Pittsburgh, over to, actually to the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, which... <laughs> which, uh, what would they call it, uh, Squirrel Hill, and to see this movie. And uh, Dr. Zhivago had an intermission. And during the intermission, um, I, I was sitting there, Edie and I were sitting there. I was on, on the aisle, and she was sitting next to me. And up the aisle comes one of the ladies who sang in the choir with Edie. Oh, for crying out uh, loud. So what am I going to do? <laughs> well, as a gentleman, I, I stand up, and she comes up, she sees Edie and, and says, says hello to Edie, and then she looks at me, Mr. Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> the secret was out. <laughs> That's not funny, even though you went to the other side of town. Oh, my goodness. But shortly thereafter, you guys got pretty serious and got engaged. Yes, we did, yeah. Of course, by this time, I was, let's see, I was married in 67, I was 32, I was 31 and a half, and... Uh, so we, we dated a good bit that fall, and then in January, I think it was, I asked her to marry me. So, oh. it, it, I, This may be inappropriate to ask, but what, what is the age difference between you and Edie? Nine years. Nine years, because yeah. she probably was right out of college. I mean, I wouldn't think that... Well, she, she's, she's a nurse. She, she did not uh, get a, a university degree, but she uh, did, did some college work along the way, but uh, she's an RN and... So. Okay. Oh, Great. So sweet. let's talk a little bit about your pastoral career. Um, okay. You are an associate pastor there in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah I was assistant pastor. Assistant. That pastor. was the days when they had three levels. Now they only have two. Oh. Okay. And so you're an assistant pastor. You meet Edie. You get married. Yeah. Where did your career go with your with your faith then? Well, at that point, I was I was working mostly with youth that time I was kind of the youth youth minister although we had a gal who was also doing some of that in 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 Pittsburgh 
the, the, the church that I was in was also a fairly conservative church. And, and so they were not appreciative of some of the, my background. They were a little bit leery about, about the background. And uh, so I didn't have much of an opportunity there to, to do much in terms of, of what was going on in terms of civil rights movement. For that that to kind of took a back seat for a while while I was there. I was trying to help people see that, that Christianity is something more than just uttering faith statements. It's something that involves you in the world. And uh, to, uh, to what degree I managed to make that happen, I'm not sure. But at least that was, that was kind of what I was looking to do at that point mm-hmm. was that, that uh, yes, it's, it's important to have a, an understanding of what it is that, that you're saying yes to. But it's also important then to express that out in the world, wherever, wherever the world happens to be for you at this time. Yes. And so I was doing that sort of thing. Um, there was a point, I think it may have been when Martin Luther King was murdered. That night after that happened, I went over to the other side of Pittsburgh to meet with a group of people who were trying to plan some things for to respond to that that happening, I think I got lost on my way over to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, terrible <laughs> city to find your way around, and uh, that was long before there were such things as, as uh, Google what, Maps. Google Maps, or what are these things you put in a car that tells you where you are and yes. where you aren't, so forth. Anyway, I, I I finally found my way, only to discover that when I got over there to this meeting, that there had been a curfew had been in place that I didn't know about, and now I had to figure out how to get back home again. Oh, so, uh, but anyway, that was that was one of the things that was going on. Yeah. Um, and at this point, shortly after this, the pastor of the church was called to another church, and when a past in those days, one of the differences between being an associate pastor, which is what Anne Marie currently is. Mm-hmm. And being an assistant pastor was that when when the pastor left a church, and so an assistant pastor had no no way you, you had no rights in terms of staying on. Mm-hmm. It was at the at the completely at the invitation of the next pastor. And so I at that point I needed to start to look to do something else. And so I kept my interest in in campus ministry all that time. And so I decided to uh, see what I could do there. And so I applied with the Board of Christian Education in Philadelphia to see if I could become a campus pastor. And and eventually I did. And the campus ministry that I got called to was out in Southern California. And and so uh, by this time, Edie was pregnant with our first child. So we moved out to California, and, and that's where... Uh, our first daughter was born, and then our second daughter was born out there also. Wow. Goodness gracious. So you start in Minnesota, then you're in Taiwan, then you're in New York, then you're in Mississippi, then you're in Pennsylvania, and now you're in California. Yeah. That's quite the... How, how did you end up map. in Texas? <laughs> well, that's a fairly easy way. We've got, we've got five grandkids. Our, one of our daughters uh, was in Texas, and, and she... So she moved down here, and Edie couldn't stand being away from the grandkids. Oh. And so 
we move down here. This, and and the thinking behind my being here was that while I was in ministry, the choice of moves had a lot to do with with what was available to me. And now, I think that I thought it was fair that Edie, uh, Edie's choices play a major role in this thing. So that's why we're here. So what year did you move here? Oh five. So I didn't know. So you came here from California then? No, we, oh. we, no, from, from Cali- no, no, from California. We moved back. We moved to. Oh, when I was in California, I was a campus minister, but I was called to a parish ministry in Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> and was there from seventy-seven to ninety-one, oh. and then went to Rockford, Illinois, in a parish ministry, oh. and, and it was in Rockford, and then at Rockford we moved back to the Omaha area because. We figured our, our two daughters, having gone all the way through school in Omaha, they would, there would be some chance that they would come there, uh, at least occasionally, and visit us. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, uh, that never worked out very much. Happen, right? That didn't happen. <laughs> so let's, let's kind of turn to some of the funner stories or, or things you have in here. Growing up, you uh, did two things you mentioned on a regular basis. You like to play baseball. Yeah. And then you also play golf every week yeah. with a friend of yours. So I'm going to start with the baseball, that your your earliest dreams would be a Major League Baseball player. And it sounded like your high school maybe didn't have a high school team until you were almost about to graduate. That's correct. Well, I was a senior when we first had a high school baseball team. And the very first game we played was on the afternoon of my gradu- high school graduation. <laughs> and our, our, we, were, we were the visiting team. We were in Cloquet, which is about 15 miles out of Duluth. I was I was the catcher. I was the first catcher that the team had in its history, and uh, the guy I was pitching was a guy that I had played catch with from the time I was knee high to a grasshopper. And uh, top of the first inning, I didn't get up to bat. I suppose my hitting was so bad that I wouldn't get up until the ninth. <laughs> but in any case, so uh, our team didn't score in the top of the inning, and so I didn't. I never got to bat. And the bottom of the inning, I'm catching, and uh, uh, somebody hits, gets a foul tip off the bat. And unfortunately, my right hand, my throwing hand, was out here, and the ball came across oh, and drove that top part of the finger down through the skin. And oh. So I had a compound fracture of my right index finger. And so they had to haul me over to the hospital and put this bandage on. I come home. And everyone's getting ready to go to commencement. <laughs> and I, I, I come home, and, and uh, Mom sees me walk in <laughs> with, with this huge bandage on this, yeah. this right hand, oh. and she's up faints. Oh, that's so <laughs> that is a great story. Oh, my so on to the golf. Yes. Uh, Mike is a, is a golfer. I've golfed a little bit. Mike golfed as, just that's, this past Friday. Right, yeah. Right. But you haven't golfed since 1967. Well, that that was a bit of an exaggeration. I, I, I was taking some some liberty with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I I haven't I haven't golfed probably in the last 20 years or so. But uh, you haven't golfed seriously since that day. Since I got the hole in one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where were you with, when you did that? Were you in Pennsylvania? Or yes, you... I was in Pennsylvania, and it was a month after we got married, and I was out golfing with with four old guys 
and and I was the fifth person, and so we had we split up the the five of us. You know, uh, they don't like having five on a on a side, and they split us up into two two groups, and I was in the second group. The first group, there was a guy that I don't remember his name anymore. It doesn't make any difference, but anyway, we get up to this. I think it was the third hole, and um, the first group had already gotten, had already played out, and they they're up on the next tee, and they could oversee the the, the hole, and there's a short a short hole. The second, the third hole was a short hole, and the green was up above head level from where the tee was, and I hit the ball, and this, this uh, guy says, who hit that? And I said, I did. He says, it's in the hole. And I expected he was just uh, monkeying around. <laughs> he, he was, yeah, playing with me, that's, that's correct. And, and uh, no, that's what happened. The ball was in the hole. Wow. Oh. So I have an ashtray at home, which I've never used, but from, from the company that made the ball, Pinnacle of Kushnet, and that uh, has the, the ball that I hit for the hole-in-one. That is so fun. Oh, my goodness. Another funny story, when I when I was golfing out in California one time, I went out, I was alone, so I had to be assigned to a, a group, and uh, uh, got to about the fourth hole, and we moved along pretty fast on the first three holes. About about fourth or fifth hole, someplace along the way there, um, these guys had been telling all kinds of funny stories that you can't repeat around a woman, and and uh, and uh, all of a sudden we were stopped because the course was plugged up at that point. And somebody turned to me and said, "What kind of work do you do?" I said, "Well, I'm a Presbyterian pastor." I never heard a funny story after that. <laughs> I had a feeling that's where that was going to go. Oh my gosh, that is so. so- w- one more thing I want to ask you is: we ask you what your first job was and how long did it last. And I don't know if you exaggerated here, but you talk about how you got a call from a friend, yeah. uh, I guess a family friend that had a restaurant and they needed some help. So you went down there to be a busboy. And uh, coffee is taken pretty serious in Minnesota. Yes, And it is. you are asked to, um, to make the coffee. And then your next sentence is that job lasted six hours. So did you struggle to make the coffee, and that's why the job ended? Or no, no. It was at the end of the day, it was kind of the end of the day that, that those two things are kind of unrelated to okay. each other. Yeah, yeah. But you, but it was just you just helped out for a yeah, day. just yeah. for one day. Yeah, yeah. But the more important stories about my jobs is with my third job where I worked in the summertime. I was, I think, I was after my senior year in high school, but I'm not sure exactly the timing on that anymore. Uh, third year in high school, and and uh, I worked for the sewer department in Duluth, oh. and, and they just gotten a new tool, which is something, uh, just an oversized uh, device that works like a rotor rooter does, and uh, so I worked on that thing, and it puts me down in sewers day in and day. I'd have to go down in the sewer to thread that thing into the into the sewer, and then get back out of the sewer and anyway as I said in the sewer the, the, uh, I said in this thing is that uh, the important lesson I got from that is that the and, and we worked in all parts of Duluth and the sewage that came from the poor people's homes stunk as bad as it does from the rich people's homes <laughs> and, and that, that, that has, has informed my life ever since yes 
That's that's a good lesson there. Um, okay, so we're going to be wrapping up here really quick. We did have a couple things from Edie, your lovely wife. And I like what she says here. She says, we said, what is one quality or trait associated with you? And she says, Dave is the most caring and honest person I know. He accepts everyone as a child of God. And I know even in the years you've been here at Northwoods, anyone who knows you has similar similar sentiments that you have a kindness and a heart to mm-hmm. serve and a heart for inequality. And um, you really live a beautiful you really walk your walk. You don't just talk the talk. And I think that's so admirable. Um, one last story we want to ask real quick. is She said, ask him about the barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the, bar- <laughs> the barbarians are a group of guys uh, roughly my age um, from starting out when we were probably in the eighth and ninth grades. And I wasn't among the those that began the group. And it was one of these informal groups. I never knew who was a, entirely who were members. There were people kind of on the edges that I didn't know if they were barbarian, <laughs> barbarians or not. <laughs> but but we did goofy things. We'd go into a movie theater and, and uh, we had a... Uh, a sound that we made <laughs> <laughs> that we all recognize. Yeah. <laughs> We'd go to movie theaters. And somebody would start start saying that sound, and somebody else would repeat it in another part of the movie theater. And so it was going on all over the movie theater. Oh, shenanigans! Yeah, right. It was shenanigans. That's precisely perfectly said. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's great. I love your laugh. Well, Dave, like Thomas and I said when we were starting. You have such a story, and this is just a a drop in the bucket, but we really appreciate you taking some time to share some of of, of your your time while you were in Taiwan and your learnings and and about your family and growing up, and then a little bit about being a pastor and your, your civil rights movement work. I mean, what a story. So we really appreciate you sharing with that. With well, sharing it with us I, it's today. It's been fun to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you. I've, it's been great. It's been a great time. Yeah, good, good. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to More to My Story podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast service. And please also share us with your friends and family. You can find more about More to My Story podcast on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages.